Friday on the Fan Morning Show. Sports at 598 Fan, Justin and Ailish. John Morosi, MLB Network Insider, joins us this morning. How's it going, John? Outstanding, Ailish and Justin. Uh, good morning from New York City. We've oh. got the, the Mariners and the Yankees later on tonight on MLB Network. So uh, a big weekend of baseball. I've got some of my colleagues who are over in London right now mm-hmm. getting ready for the London Series. It's going to be exciting for the sport as well. So a great time all the way around. Okay, the London Series. I, I, You know what? It's never been something that I've really been intrigued in, like, you know the NBA goes overseas, and you're like, "Oh yeah, they they're playing there." How big of it is? Uh, how big of a event is it there? Do the MLB fans um, travel a lot, or, or are you building you know a different fan base there in London? Right, it's, it's, it's a great question, and and we're we're still I think in the process of seeing exactly what this event will become for for years to come. This is the second edition. The first was in 2019, mm-hmm. and of course the pandemic hit, so that uh, sort of knocked us off track for a couple of years. The first one was a huge success. So the series is played at, uh, it's, it's called London Stadium. It's the former Olympic Stadium. It's where Tottenham plays, mm-hmm. or West, West Ham United, rather. So it's where West Ham plays. And, um, and so what we saw with the Yankees and Red Sox uh, a few years ago it was a very, very hitter-friendly atmosphere <laughs> because of just imagining how you'd fit a baseball stadium into a, uh, into a soccer pitch. Uh, it was a very unique configuration, and there were a lot of runs scored. <laughs> and so I, I would expect it's still going to be a very hitter-friendly environment now this weekend for the Cardinals and Cubs. Uh, and it was largely uh, local local fans in Europe, uh, the, the baseball community in Europe. And it's, in terms of fans, it's growing in, in England. We, we actually saw Team Great Britain play uh, quite well in the World Baseball Classic. They picked up a win over Columbia. They qualified for the next one, which is great. Uh, great news for, for baseball. They actually they gave the U.S. a run for their money in the first, first game of the Classic this year as well. So uh, I think baseball is growing there. Uh, it's obviously not on the level of, uh, of football, of course, but it's, it's, it's getting there. And I think this is part of a, a multi-year play plan for MLB in Europe, uh, not maybe to the extent that the NHL is going there uh, with a lot of games and, uh, on a very continual basis, but actually there's going to be a London series next year, and then uh, they're going to go to Paris in 2025. So uh, while a lot of MLB's activity internationally tends to be in uh, – in Asia and in Latin America, this is really a, a big foray into Europe. And actually, my, my colleagues on MLB Central, uh, that show will be uh, actually be hosted from London today and tomorrow. Uh, there's there's a place called Home Run House, which is like a it's sort of like a a, a fan centric environment uh, there in London, where where the baseball community of London can gather and watch games together. And it's pretty close to where London Stadium is, so they're going to actually do the show from this fan area in, in London. So I'm excited. Uh, I can't wait to hear how the show goes there and, and to watch it and, and, and to experience what the excitement is for baseball there in the, in the UK and broadly in Europe. Is there like an end goal? Like I couldn't imagine a team ever being there for good. I mean, I think the NFL can pull it off, trying to pull it off. They probably will in the end pull it off uh, one day, but that's once a week and you got time to travel and get over there. I just don't think that could ever work with major league baseball, but do they have something in mind that they're building towards, or is this just like once a year outreach in Europe? You know, it's a great question. I I do think there is, there is an end goal Uh, there. And I believe there can be an end goal without there being a franchise there. Uh, I wouldn't ever totally rule anything out. Uh, I'd still be kind of surprised if, if it did happen in that way, just because 
to your point of the travel logistics. But if you if you grow the the number of fans who are subscribing to MLB.tv and watching a favorite team and, and choosing a favorite team um, every year by 10%, 5%, um, eventually that's going to be a, a pretty big number. And and I think that we, you know, I, I speak as as, a North, as someone who's born in North America and, and loves soccer, I, I've learned more and more about soccer throughout my life, and I've become more of a fan of uh, whether it's the Premier League and, and certainly for me the, the Italian League. And it's just, it's taken it's taken some time, but I've gotten there. And I think one of the things that, that is unique, um, I know just from a scheduling logistical standpoint, uh, when I spoke with Drew Spencer, who's the manager of the Great Britain national team and who actually is from the U.S., Drew said that, yeah, you start to hear when there's, when there's an afternoon game in the Eastern time zone in the U.S. So let's say the Jays are playing a, a 1 o'clock game um, at, at Rogers Center. Well, that's a, that's a primetime game in, in England. And so uh, Sundays are good days to watch baseball. If you're, a, if you're either an expat or someone who's gotten into baseball in London, you can, you can watch, go to a pub at 7 o'clock uh, in England time, and you can watch ball game live. And I think that in this in this era of of TV available anywhere and sports available anywhere all the time around the world, um, you can do it. You can build that fan base. And I think that in the same way that all of us who like the Premier League or or, or like European soccer, um, uh, we're sort of fascinated about the game and, and and by translation European culture. The inverse can be true as well. And we kind of sometimes forget how how interesting we in North America are to people in Europe and our, and our, our sports. So it's, it's pretty cool. I, I don't know if we're ever going to quite see uh, the, the displays of, of passion uh, for the British national baseball team, like we see for the Latvian national hockey team, but you never know. We might, we might eventually uh, uh, get there. And, it, and it's, I, I do think that you really sense when you bring your sport to a different country, the appreciation that it, that it brings, the excitement, and, and we'll see it again this fall with the NHL going. I, I know as, a, as someone who watches the Wings carefully, I'm excited that they're going to play in Sweden. Like it, it's, it's, it's baby steps, and, and I think that uh, is baseball as big in Europe now as, um, as hockey is? No, but it's, it's building. You've got a really good culture. There's a very strong league in, in the Netherlands because um, you know, baseball is quite popular in Amsterdam and Rotterdam. There's a, there's a league in Germany. There's a league in Italy, which is fascinating um, about how the Italian league is structured to where uh, this is my favorite little last anecdote I'll share about European baseball. In the Italian league, they play three games a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday, anybody can play in that, in that game for the Italian teams. On Saturday, you have to have an Italian passport, and by Sunday, you have to be an Italian born and raised player. Wow. So it, gets, it gets more and more local the <laughs> further you get into the weekend, which, which I say as a proud Italian is, is somewhat, uh, somewhat typical of us. So it, it's, a very, uh, it's, it's a really unique construct. Yeah, Friday, anybody, and by Sunday, you, you have to have uh, played the game in Emilia Romana or elsewhere to be able to get on the field. That's uh, interesting. I wonder how big the roster sizes are in order to have uh, games throughout the weekend with uh, diminishing availabilities. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty fascinating. Right. I never knew that I had to see a baseball game in Italy, but uh, it's now on the bucket list, uh, John. Okay, so the Toronto Blue Jays uh, rally, end a road trip with two straight wins over the Miami Marlins. Uh, take advantage of the Manoa candidate down there in Miami in Sandy Alcantara. 
Um, but did you see some meaningful strides taken over the last two games where it looked like maybe there was a bit of a rock bottom moment, real struggles in that Texas game, blown out the next night versus Miami, but a couple pretty decent performances strung together here by the Blue Jays. Are you seeing the positives that Ailish was clinging to this morning? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little more optimistic about the Jays than I have been in a while. And, and I, I liked some of the things that we saw. I mean, when you, when you face... Um, Sandy Alcantara on uh, on an early game uh, that is a tough assignment. I know Art Zwelling wrote a great piece about that at Sportsnet.ca, and I think to me th- this is one of the games that really tests your metal. And I, I like the way they played. Um, I-, I think that overall we're starting to see some signs of uh, of-, of life from the offense too. Um, and you look at the road ahead, and I think we would all all of us who watch this team closely would probably say. In the, in the vast number of outcomes this team could have had to this point in the season. We're probably at like the 20 or 30% mark. It's, it's certainly not the absolute worst-case scenario, but it's somewhere below what we thought the mean would be. And I, I think for them to still be a half a game back uh, of, of, the, of the wild card and have all, all the adversity that they've hit and not have Benoa right now and – um, and have injuries. Uh, I, I think that it's actually a pretty good, pretty good place to be, all things considered, by by the end part of June. And, and it's to the point now where where you can look at the roster and say, okay, if you win if you win a series against a quality Miami team, obviously now you go home for for nine. I think the schedule is starting to get a little more favorable. If you get some momentum towards the All Star break um, and maybe get yourself back up to being in a playoff position by the time. Um, the, the, the baseball world goes to Seattle. I think it's a pretty good it's a pretty good place to be, all all things considered. So um, I, I, I'm seeing the, the same positive signs that that you are. I, I think that you know, Kiermaier was was obviously a huge part of this of the series win. I, I like when his quality of at bats are there. It's a different lineup. I think Springer having two hits yesterday. You know, he to me is is the bellwether of this team in a lot of ways, along with Chapman. You know, we we spent a lot of time in our conversations focusing on Vlad and Bo. But when this team is going, and, and if this team is going to go eventually where we believe they're going to end up, which is the playoffs, then then I think Springer is really important. And Chapman, I think when he drives in a run, I looked this up yesterday, when Chapman drives in a run, this team wins more than 70% of the time. And, and he was great in April. He's been a little quieter since then. If he gets going again, uh, I think this this lineup has another, another dimension, certainly, and a much better chance to eventually land in the postseason. It's this is I just pivoting off something you said about Kiermaier. I saw some like trade talk about him, and is it crazy to think that that would be such a mistake for the Blue Jays after getting this guy and what he's done for the season? I, I just saw some circulations. Oh, maybe that they'd be interested in trading Kevin Kiermaier. Is is that is that a good move for the Blue Jays? I'd be surprised, Dalish, if, if they traded him. Uh, and because I, I, the maybe the only way in which it would be a logical thing is if they totally become non-contenders mm-hmm. by the end of July. And I just I don't see that. Um, this team is way too leveraged to this season for me to see that as being a, a logical course of action. Um, now, I would never rule it out, mm-hmm. but I, I think Kiermaier's got a chance to be part of the future too. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see. With and a couple things. Number one, uh, we know, of course, he you know makes his home in Florida, so he's able to uh, you know be at home in spring training. I think he's comfortable in, in the AL East. Uh, you can tell how excited he was to be a Blue Jay at the outset. You know, he chose to sign with the Jays. Um, he's playing well there. He's used to playing on turf. 
I think overall he's played, obviously, as he always does, a very good center field. Um, I, I would not trade him. In fact, I would look at the opposite and say, who else do you see on this team who's pushing him out of center field? And now, Dalton Varsho could play the position, and, and uh, he made a couple dazzling catches a couple nights ago. But I, I, I think I would not be trading out of my outfield depth. Uh, I, you, you, we have to realize that you know, Springer is someone who's probably not going to you know, play 162 in the outfield anymore going forward, and he's still under contract for a while. I think I think the outfield mix is not the problem for this team, and and, I, and if anything, I would find a way to extend Kevin's stay another year. I mean, I I think very highly of him. I always have, uh, just personally and professionally. I just I'm a big big fan of Kevin Kiermaier, and I I would not I would not be in any hurry to get rid of him. I think he's he's someone that needs to be part of the. If anything, he should be part of the team in 2024 and and not move to the deadline in 2023. Okay, good. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Talking to John Morosi, MOV Network Insider. Um, okay, so you mentioned Seattle. You mentioned the All-Star break and All-Star game coming up. Does the MLB ever have any thoughts about letting all of the Toronto Blue Jays just waltz their way to the All-Star game? Because at this point, they're leading the stats and the voting in a lot of categories. Um, and I wonder if there's ever a pause. Oh, you know, maybe, maybe it shouldn't be all the Blue Jays at the All-Star game. Right. No, it's uh, we've seen this happen uh, with with teams where there's a lot of support. And first of all, I want to say at, at the at the outset, it's just a tribute to the Jays fans and how yeah. popular they are across mm-hmm. Canada. Uh, I, I love it, uh, and I think that uh, it's a good reminder, candidly. And and you know, I, I I stay in very close contact with Canada, and we we have conversations all the time. Uh, I think it's great that this when when a fan in a lot of American markets who maybe doesn't have a relationship to, to Canada that, that we do in Michigan that sees, that sees, wow, all these Jays are leading the balloting. It, it really, I think, hits them and reminds them how much baseball matters in Canada. That's my first thought, mm-hmm. is that it's, it's just a great demonstration of what this team means. Um, I, I think MLB has had different chances to, um, to look at the voting. There was a year where basically the entire Royals lineup got voted in. If you remember uh, back when they were having their championship heyday and, and effectively their entire team got voted in, uh, and it sparked a lot of conversation. To me, at the end of the day, the players who belong there usually wind up there one way or another. Whether it's injury replacements, the player vote, it, it happens somehow. And and I, I I'm a believer that uh, that engagement by fans is good. And and if if your engagement comes because you feel like uh, a certain Blue Jay player should not be ahead of your guy, hey, engage away. Do what you need to do to, to vote and get your guys in the All Star game. So uh, I, I have zero issue with it. Do I think the entire Blue Jays nine should be the starting team for the American <laughs> League? No. Uh, there's there's there are a couple pretty good guys in Anaheim that I would that I would say belong in there. Uh, there's a couple of pretty good guys in Tampa, for that matter, with the way Wander Franco has played. And, and by the way, I think there's a really fun debate right now, uh, you know, up-and-coming talents behind the plate. You've got Jonah Heim in Texas and Adley Rushman in Baltimore. It's, to me, it's a pick em, you know, either way. Uh, so I, I think there are some pretty cool discussions to be had there about different all-star balloting and, and positions out there. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that Shohei is the DH in, in bats leadoff. Uh, ahead of anybody else, but uh, uh, and, I, and I have a sneaky suspicion that's probably going to happen at some point. But uh, I, I, I don't think we're going to see any changes. So basically, okay, Rangers fans and Rays fans, if you want to find a way to outcompete uh, the Blue Jays voters, 
compete, win, mm-hmm. you know, get, get online and vote. It's, it's one of the great things about it. I wouldn't call it a, it's, it's not exactly a democratic process, but it is a fan driven process. So, uh, because uh, everybody can vote as many times as they want. So uh, get on there and, and vote for your people. I don't know, John. I think Shohei maybe pitches and Brandon Belt is your uh, all-star DA. Yeah. I mean, hey, Brandon Belt's <laughs> had an amazing kidding. career. He's been, great for the, he's been great for the Jays. But I, I, I do think the people, again, we'll see, but the people probably want Shohei at the end of the day to, to lead off and be the DH. Yeah, I think everyone wants Shohei. Uh, the Angels did lose last night. He had 12 strikeouts. Uh, they are just a half game back, though, in the wild card chase. And I think, well, I'll, I'll just ask you, is success with the Angels the best case scenario for Shohei Otani? Well, right now, uh, certainly for the balance of the season, it is. And Perry Manazzi and the, the GM recently said that, that Shohei is not going anywhere at the deadline, which I think we, at this point, could have concluded just based on where, where they're trending. And, and they're, they're close enough. I, I think that the Angels realize how blessed they've been to have him at the, at the price tag that they've had him at since, since he arrived, which is one of the great bargains in the history of sports. Uh, spoiler alert, the contract he signs after this year will not be one of the bargains in sports. It will be quite the opposite <laughs> of a bargain in sports. But, but I, I think that y- you don't trade him when you've still got a chance. Like it, it would be, I think, a little disingenuous to say, well, we've got to capitalize on our asset and move him right now. And, and No, I mean, you've got to keep him. He's, he's your guy. You, you, you gotta, he's, he's your guy up until he's not your guy, and, and you need him to be there. So I, I think that, that he's helped, and the Angels, the way they've played, have made the decision a little easier for, for the front office and the, and the ownership. Uh, but I think when the season is up, we saw it. I, I had an agent tell me this week um, that not, and by the way, not Shohei's agent, he believes that his contract's going to start with a six. It's going to oh, be $600 million. Wow. And that's just one agent's opinion. I don't know that it's going to bear out that way, but I also wouldn't wouldn't tell you right now that it, that it's out of the question because of everything he is. He, he there is no one like him. You see, we all saw what Judge signed for, and and Otani in some ways is very close to, if not the offensive equal of Judge. And then oh by the way, he pitches too, and not just pitches, but he's one of the best in the game. So how do you, how do you, to me, Justin and Ailish, it's going to be one of the, one of the most amazing contracts in studies. I think professors at, at University of Toronto and McGill and Queens and Harvard and Dartmouth, they're going to be studying the risk assessment of this contract for years, because how do you look at someone who does things that no one else has ever done? And he's a hitter and a pitcher. You roll up all that value into one. You also have one of the most marketable humans in sports in terms of what can you sell advertising-wise to Japanese companies to put all over your outfield walls and all over your stadium. But, oh, by the way, if, if a twinge in the UCL doesn't go right at some point in time, this entire two-way thing is, is still very tenuous because we have seen how many times about how fickle the health of a pitcher can be. So – um, it is fascinating, uh, but as long as this train keeps going, um, and if he says, "Hey, I am I am the equal of Garrett Cole on the mound, and I'm the equal of roughly, and the equal of of Judge in the batter's box, roughly, add them all together, and that number gets to be above six. So I, I, it's uh, it's it's going to be one of the all-time most 
amazing things to cover. And I suspect that we'll have a couple conversations about it during the winter months on this show as well. I certainly don't doubt that. Uh, we were with John Morosi, MLB Network Insider. Uh, last one for you here. How great of a story has Joey Votto, the Cincinnati Reds, been? Uh, you know, they got young studs, uh, rookies making their debut, but just seeing Joey Votto back there and just that team propelled to a really exciting level of baseball to watch. I, I'm thrilled, and I, I'm a big Joey Votto fan. I've really enjoyed my conversation with Joey over the years. And, and I, and first of all, he's, you'd have to say he's one of the great Canadian athletes of mm-hmm. this generation. I mean, he's, he's already uh, – he's got a chance. He's got to play you know, the, the record for home runs among Canadian-born players is Larry Walker at 383, and, and Joey's at 343 now. So he's, uh, he's close. He's getting closer. Uh, and I, I'm a believer that Joey's going to be a Hall of Famer. I've got to vote. I vote for him. I, I think that he is one of the, of the defining hitters of his time. Um, and and to see that experience and you know home run in this first game, joining the hottest team in baseball, this this great combination of experience and youth uh, with Ellie De La Cruz and McLean and just all this young talent. And, and Joey's there. And, and I, you can just tell. You can often tell, Alish and Justin, and we've all been around sports a long time, the, the, the players with their reactions tell you without a word, with just their, their body language, they tell you how they feel about their teammates. You can tell just by watching. And, and I, you can just tell in game one how much he is respected and revered by his teammates. And that, to me, is really cool. Uh, the respect they have for him and, and how much – they were excited to see that he was now officially in uniform part of this. And, and that really warmed my heart um, uh, as someone who's not terribly far away in age from Joey. Like it, it sort of makes you feel young again a little bit to watch him doing this. And so I'm, I'm thrilled for him. And, and listen, this team in, in a very winnable division, the, the NL Central was there sort of hanging around waiting for somebody to take, to take control of it for two months. And the Cardinals are nowhere to be found. And, and the Pirates are good but not great. The Brewers are good but not great. And now all of a sudden, here come the Reds with this, with this amazing amount of young talent. Maybe they add a starting pitcher and go for this thing. It's, just, it's an amazing tribute to their, their, I think their player development. Sean Pender does a great job there. Uh, I'm just I'm thrilled for, for their front office, but most of all, I'm thrilled for Joey Votto because wouldn't it be amazing to see Joey in one more postseason run here in October? It's, it is not hard to imagine at this point. Yeah, we're uh, proud of our Canadian guys, and he's certainly one of them. Uh, John, we'll chat with you next week and the NHL draft next week. We'll have to get your thoughts on some of the young kids that get that opportunity, uh, but we'll save that for next week. We appreciate you no, jumping that on. that sounds great. <laughs> That's a good good tease for next week. Hey, Justin. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I'll have some thoughts. I, I uh, there are a couple American guys that mm-hmm. I believe are moving up the board, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll let you know who I think there. And even a couple guys, American guys that have played in the OHL, Brustevich, Kerry Terrance, Quentin Musty, so they, they kind of belong to both of us. So I'll, I'll be watching those guys. <laughs> Perfect. Well. Okay, we'll do double duty next week. Appreciate coming on, John. We'll chat then. Sounds great. Thanks, Alice. Thanks, That's Justin. John Morosi, MLB Network Insider, and he's got the, the young prospect pulse. He's ready to rock, ready he, for any situation. He's fired up that we mentioned that we're talking NHL. I don't think he's turning down uh, next year in Paris. Yo, no, John Morosi in Paris. That's to, probably why he flex, went. To Ooh. flex that French that he can just yes. all, all of a sudden snap of the fingers and he's fluent. It's no Paris, Ontario, but it's They're Paris, Paris. They're both good. Maybe he do, goes to Paris, Ontario just to like prep to warm I know, up. I, I also noticed he got to Dartmouth there with the, the studies 
didn't get to Western. Hey, you know what, Justin? If he goes back and listens to the first five minutes of the Fan Morning Show, where you can download and subscribe, five stars, he'll hear your mug math yeah. and he'll be so moved that when he comes on next week, he'll make sure he mentions Western. Just legitimized an institution with that. Right he did. There, Someone in the comments math. was like, you're getting schooled by Western. I'm like, okay, really? I never I said that. I was I like a mathematician, that. folks. Okay. I'm just a hat rack. Have you heard that saying? Yeah. Just a hat sits on there. Not much going in there. Um, okay, time for something to chew on brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. Yum, yum, yum. We've got some clips to play for you. Matt Moore, so we talked about this yesterday. Uh, he's an NBA writer for the Action Network. Um, had made some comments about where Fred Van Vliet might be looking about the comments that were circulated around the Raptors being tough to deal with or difficult to deal with. Um, so he joined the J.D. Bunkus podcast yesterday. And we got two clips to play um, about just kind of more insight on this. So let's start with um, let's start with Matt Moore on Fred Van Vliet and his impending free agency. I would be pretty surprised at this point, given what I've heard, if Fred Van Vliet were to return, given that he's got pretty significant offers. Like he's very, very desired on the market um, because teams are looking for those kind of point guards. And this is not the market to be shopping for point guard in. Ultimately, Philadelphia is a team that would look at Fred Van Vliet in a sign-and-trade scenario. Uh, I think Houston is the other name that I can say I've, I've heard strongly linked to Van Vliet on a short years, big money deal. That's what Houston has been offering around the various veteran free agents. They want veterans. They want adults in the room. And also they want to try and like compete a little bit right now. They're not really interested in continuing the rebuild. Uh, so there's all these kind of teams I think that are in the market for Van Vliet. Uh, and they all seem prepared to either provide a better chance of winning a championship or, provide a big money situation for a player of his stature. Okay, so Fred Van Vliet, maybe not as much of a surprise, but seemingly maybe not much longer a Raptor. We knew that. Well, yeah, I mean, one one person reporting, obviously, I think there's stuff there. Ultimately, uh, I think Fred's a master of generating interest in order to try to mm-hmm. drive up his price. Bad uh, on yourself? I'm going to resist the urge to come down on the Raptors until if and when this actually happens. <laughs> but we know what it'll say about the front office if Fred not just walks for nothing, is not playing for this team next year. It's likely it was a big mistake, and we're still looking at the Pirtle thing, and we're still looking mm. at you know the potential OG stuff that was there uh, before the trade deadline. Like these things are starting to add up in a way that is unfavorable and maybe untenable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Is the fact that your front office is being rumored to be difficult to deal with untenable? Here's Matt Moore, again, on J.D. Bunkus' podcast yesterday talking about that idea floated around about the Raptors not being uh, nice to play with in the sandbox. The thing I just continue to hear is everyone calls me and, like, let's try and get a deal done. And then, like, the offers are just like, well, no, that's that's ridiculous. No, like, the the asking price for Pascal Siakam, for OG and OB in particular, is so sky high that there's a real reticence to even seriously engage in those conversations. And there's... I was told by two executives that they're like, I just, I really don't honestly want to even engage sometimes. Like, another was like, look, we have to. There's only 29 teams in the league. They're still going to get calls. We got nobody like you have who you have to work with, and those are the only people that you can trade with. But how Toronto views as players is way higher than what the market does. What I've ascertained is nobody's come close to making what an offer that would fulfill what Toronto's asking for for those players. Okay, that's the part that scares me. We talked about this yesterday before hearing this clip about 
yeah, you, fully, you have every authority to value your players at the highest. Like they're your players. You care about them. You care about how they're viewed as well. But when he says that some teams just don't really want to even approach the subject, don't really want to even start to have a conversation with the Raptors, that they're so astronomically out of touch in terms of you know what the market value is. That's what scares me. Well, you mentioned there's a difference. Yeah, you mentioned the sandbox. It, it kind of brings me back to that, where there's like one kid who just will never like will refuse to play along. Is that you? Will refuse? No, I was. That's the jawbreaker kid. It is the jawbreaker kid who just won't like doesn't want to lose so badly mm-hmm. that does that they don't even play the game mm-hmm. like that type of kid. Maybe the Raptors are that type of kid in the in the sandbox right now. It's Brett. That's yes. Brett with the jawbreaker. You and Brett, like you've taken shots at Brett just, two straight this is shows. The name that I picture with the jawbreaker kid okay. in the sandbox. That's fair. Not I don't really Brett's know any jawbreakers and a refusal to play nice. <laughs> anyway, big big night in the NBA today. Uh, Raptors obviously with the thirteenth pick, seeming like that play for number three is not really a rumor anymore with with the Raptors. But anything can happen. We saw it last night at eleven fifty five p.m blockbuster trades so be on your toes folks get those uh, alerts ready on your on your twitter greg wasinski joins us after the break senior nhl writer for espn uh we'll have the on the the morning after the hall of fame induction nominees were announced sleeper picks galore how he evaluates what the hall of fame means is it the hall of fame the hall of good how do we move into a realm where it means a little bit more to the fellow community that witnesses these inductions, which is in November. So I, I always forget that we do this now and then we'll have this conversation again in November, but let's wrap it up with Greg. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back on the Fan Morning Show. It's never good when you irk everyone with a Hall of Fame class, but it seems like the uh, committee over there managed to do just that uh, with its latest class, with its 2023 class. To discuss that and more, we bring in Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer at ESPN. Good morning, Greg. Well, they didn't irk everybody. Goalies are happy. <laughs> the, goal, yeah, goalies, the goalie union's happy. You're right. Goalies yeah. Are pretty doing, yeah, goalies are doing pretty good. So it's not, it, I mean, everyone but goalies, I guess, would be the thing that happened. But, yeah, it was, you know, like this This whole, I mean, the, the McGillney thing has gotten to the point. The, the last time I was this pissed off with the Hall of Fame was during the whole Pat Burns mm. stuff where, like, they waited and waited, and then he died, and then they put him in. Like, that was nonsensical. Yeah. This this one's beyond nonsensical. This one is just, like, you, you, you know, there, there has to be some sort of, like, underlying thing that's happening in that selection committee room that we're not a privy to to keep a guy with, with his numbers and his story out of the Hall of Fame um, this long. And, and then not only that, but, like, then put in – just like inferior offensive players and, and guys don't even come close to reaching the level of fame that a guy like McGillney had is just, it's just mind blowing. So do you think they're waiting and waiting and waiting for maybe something to put him in? Or do you think they've made their decision on McGillney? I have no idea, man. Like, first of all, I don't think it's, it's ever that they've made their decision on somebody because these things can boomerang. I mean, like Mark Howell waited like 30 years to get to the hall of fame, right? Like, I mean, he's just, these things just happen 
in a weird way, whether it's the, the makeup of the selection committee changes or there's a reconsideration of somebody's career, which <clears throat> one imagines is why Pierre Turgeon got in this year. But, you know, it's been floated by a few people, including Rob Rossi, who maybe had a little bit of, of insider knowledge on, on this process, that the reason McGillney doesn't get in this year is because of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and that the selection committee is going to run away from trying to celebrate Russian players at this at this moment, to which I'd say, again, like, <laughs> um, if ever where there was a time to uh, put in a guy who literally ran away from the Soviet mm-hmm. Union um, and, and, and opened up the floodgates for, for others to do the same, it would be now. And, and I know that he has returned to Russia. I know there's, like, a pictures of him next to Putin at some sort of, like, exhibition hockey game and stuff like that. But, I mean, the, the story of McGillney was always the most important facet of McGillney and his, 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 his importance to NHL history, to hockey history, to the history of, of, of Russian hockey versus North American hockey. Like all of that just comes together uh, in one package with a guy who also was an amazing player. Oh, and by the way, like we wouldn't even be having this conversation about whether it's too, too much of a sensitive time to celebrate a Russian player. If you had just put him in years earlier when he was eligible and, and should have been in the hall of fame. So Again, not not to plant my flag on one player. There's other very deserving players that aren't in the Hall of Fame, but the McGillney thing is just confounding at this point. We could not agree more. Um, and I think that the longer it goes on, the less, uh, I don't know if, if anyone would ever decline going into the Hall of, Hall of Fame, but I think it just certainly <laughs> loses its luster. Like if they call him in 10 years and he's been waiting for 25, 30 years, what's he, oh, great, thanks. Thanks, I'll be there. It's just, it's it's getting strange. I wonder if you think that they would ever do what the MLB does when there's a cap, like a 10-year limit. If you don't get in in the 10 years, you don't get in. Would that help with the solutions of making it more, you know, a, a hall of fame and not a hall of who's available, who's good? Like, let's put some bodies in this room. <laughs> it is, I mean, it's such a weird process. I mean, you're right. Like, you know, if there was a timer on this thing or a cap on the years or if it got kicked over to a, a veterans committee at some point, like it would maybe make this process a little bit more streamlined as it is. It's just kind of like, you know, when's the last time somebody was talking about Mike Vernon, (laughs) you know, it it just, it just be, yeah, it just becomes, it just becomes such a, such a strange thing. Like ostensibly it's a museum, right? Like it's a museum and they're trying to encourage people to come and spend money and be at the museum. Right. And, And so you'd figure you'd probably want players that have been relevant within the last decade in these induction ceremonies to, to satisfy that end. But who knows? I mean, the bottom line is that, and and again, I don't want to try to like trash the guy's career, but I have a, I have a real, um, I have a real affinity for the fame part of the hall of fame. Like I've always said, well, first of all, I've always said that like, if I was in charge of the hall of fame, like three quarters of the people that are in the hall of fame wouldn't be there. I would just have it for like the generational talents, the, 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 the game redefining players. But, I mean, the essential thing for me with a Hall of Famer is, is the elevator pitch. Like, tell me in one sentence why this person is immortal. And, I, and you could do that with a number of guys. Um, I, maybe you could even do it with Barrasso and Vernon if you wanted to, because at least they were essential to a couple of Stanley Cup champions, and in Vernon's case, one of Conn Smythe. But, like, what is the elevator pitch on Pierre Turgeon? Like, what, what, do I, what do I tell my kid about, like, why, why she's looking at this plaque of the Hall of Fame? A, a guy who played a long time for several teams. Like, what is, what is the elevator pitch? What is the immortality tag on on Pierre Turgeon? I don't understand that one. I understand it in the sense that he compiled a lot of points. He scored over half his points, by the he way. Won the lady bang. 
Wow. And one Lady Bing. Lady Bing is having a moment, right? So like that's, <laughs> Goalies that's and the, the Lady problem. Bing. <laughs> that's the problem with the Pierre Turgeon thing. Pierre Tur- the Pierre Turgeon thing is maybe in my lifetime the most just pure stats-driven uh, selection by the Hall of Fame committee that I can remember. Like, he's got the numbers. Like, even mm-hmm. Dave Andrichuk, who got in based on the goals, I mean, the goal total was really impressive. But also you could say, oh, that guy, that's the guy who scored, like, most of his goals standing five feet away from the crease. Like, like you could, at least he's got a story to tell. I have absolutely no idea what the Pierre Turgeon story is, uh, you know, as far as his, his on-ice accomplishment. I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, 500 goals, 1,000 points is like, it's, it, those are like common benchmarks, right? But I, I feel like it deserves a little bit more context. And again, like I don't have the most familiar, uh, I'm not the most familiar with Pierre Turgeon's career, but it has to like hit you over the head. Like it has to be so obvious uh, when you, if you're a Hall of Famer, and it, it, as you're right, I mean, you're right. It just comes down to that elevator pitch and it is hard to make that uh, on a guy like Pierre Turgeon. If you're looking at the goaltenders, because it's the year of the goaltender, evidently, if they just went Joseph and Osgood over Barrasso and Vernon, would it have been met with more positivity? Uh, not necessarily. I, you know, I, I think it would. Have, I think Cujo's got a real, a real case now, though. I mean, the fact that Vernon and Barrasso got in—it's just funny. It's like I, I, again, I wish these guys would talk to better understand what it is we're dealing with here with this criteria. Because on the one hand. You can you can obviously say that were it not for the fact that Barrasso was the backstop for back-to-back Penguins Stanley Cup teams, I mean he has a Vesna too, but those championships are the reason that make him unique. In Vernon's case, he led two different teams to the Cup, won a Conn Smythe. Like that's really impressive. And but yet we're also told at the same time it's not about the championships you win. And, and so then Pierre Turgeon gets in, but you have two other guys that got in in the same class whose careers are defined by the championships they won in the National Hockey League. So it just becomes so confusing. And in Osgood's case, again, like to go back to your, to your question, I mean, that guy's whole case is postseason success. Well, I mean, two guys just got in based on postseason success. So what does his case look like now if, if, if that for goaltenders is, is all of a sudden a really important benchmark? Well, let's keep piling on while I ask you why it's only a one-woman model. Like, why oh, is it just God. A, Here's your one lady, and we'll see you next year for the rest of the list that's waiting. I just And, and maybe it's because if you look at the 18 selection committee members, uh, 16 of them are male, but I just think it's it's frustrating as, as a woman's hockey player myself, but I just think that there's uh, there's space for more than one, and it just seems that they don't want to walk into that. It's idiotic. And I, I once had a selection committee member tell me many years ago when, the, when, the, when women started to get admitted uh, in their own category that, at the, that there was a time that they were worried if they kept on putting two in every year that <laughs> they'd run out of women. This is like the little, literal argument that was laid out to me is that if they, were, they were worried they would run out of women. And, um, you know, if, even if you wanted to give that a little bit of, of mind um, and talk about the fact that, like, in the, in the early years of the, of the U.S.-Canada rivalry, like, you have a finite number of players in those teams, mm-hmm. but it's certainly changed in years since. I mean, Megan Duggan's, uh, you know, eligible. Uh, obviously, Jen Botterill's eligible. Julie Chu's eligible. Like, you still have you – ha- you're starting to get in, getting into that, that sort of, like, phase of you have the old-school players that still haven't gotten in. And then the players that have defined the USA-Canada rival in particular, rivalry in particular for the last decade. But then on top of that, again, Hockey Hall of Fame. You can go international and, and you can bring in players from all around the world that had huge influence. And 
And, uh, and yeah, maybe they don't move the needle as much as somebody from the USA-Canada rivalry, but it doesn't mean they're not worthy for accomplishing what they accomplish in their own countries. So um, the fact that they've only admitted two women in the same class once, and I think it was in the first year, 2010, if memory serves, mm-hmm. is, is a, it's, it's a crime. Like, what are we doing? Like, I mean, it's, it, to, to not take advantage of the max on that category and to have so many women that are eligible and worthy of being enshrined is just, it, it boggles the mind. Yeah, I mean, the, every year by going with the one woman model that we're calling it this morning, you're exaggerating <clears throat> an existing issue and something and mistakes from the past. Like every year, the disparity and the disproportionate nature of this Hall of Fame uh, grows because of the way that they induct players every single year. Uh, let's stash this until November and let's talk <laughs> about the offseason ahead in the NHL. You wrote about Domino's recently uh, for ESPN. Is there something that, you know, one thing that has to, a decision has to be made, a player moved, a trade that has to be executed that will be most impactful on the league this offseason? I mean, it's got to be the goalie trade carousel for me right now. I mean, I, and, and I think in particular, the idea that Connor Hallebuck could move. I mean, there's obviously a number of teams that are searching for that type of goaltender, either because they, in some cases they don't have any goalies right now, like Carolina, or they're looking to upgrade like a team like Jersey or, uh, you know, the, the Kings, I think, are more in that Carolina area of, of needing a goalie. Once he moves, it's going to set a lot of dominoes. I mean, if, if he moves, I should say. It, it'll set a lot of dominoes in motion because now, you know, whoever loses out on, on Hellebuck, maybe they turn their attention to trying to overpay for UC Soros if he's available. Um, then you have John Gibson potentially from the Ducks. And then, you know, once you get past the trade options, now you're looking at the the unrestricted free agent carousel, which itself is, is not great, but, but still has some really interesting names like Freddie Anderson and Tristan Jerry and, and uh, Jonas Carposalo and a few others. So I, I'm waiting for that first big goalie domino to fall. And then everybody who, who needs a goalie and there are several teams that do are going to then scramble to kind of get theirs. Speaking with Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer at ESPN. Okay, so that's league-wide domino. Is there a Leafs domino to get this thing going? Is there a <laughs> signing? Is there a uh, non-signing? Is there something that's going to happen so <laughs> Leafs fans can can start, you know, getting excited for what's next? Well, I'm intrigued by this this Ryan O'Reilly flirtation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that um, you know, I, listen, I think I think it was terrific for them um, last season, and I think that as they continue to kind of press forward under the new regime and, and, and not look to reload, but continue to try to build towards uh, winning a cup with this group. The idea that he sticks around, I think is a good one. If you can get him at the right price, um, you know, the other opportunities for O'Reilly out there are, are sort of maybe not as, as plum as this one, as far as ice time, as far as the uh, ability to win now with a team. I mean, I remember there was like scuttlebutt about, oh, would he want to go play with Bedard in Chicago? I'm like, why? Like that team is that team is like three or four years away from contention, and O'Reilly certainly, I think, would probably like to put another ring on a singer before then. So, I'm intrigued by the match there. I think it's actually a pretty good one if if there's a um, if there's a desire of the for the player to come back and come back at the right price. So the NHL draft is next week, and, you know, there are going to be some surprises. There are going to be uh, storylines. There's not going to be a surprise at number one, but there could be one at number two. (laughs) Do you buy into the idea that Anaheim could uh, shock some people and forego the safe pick and go with Matt Vay-Mishkoff at number two? That was my my prediction as far as chaos goes, maximum chaos, because then it would really set things very askew for the rest of the the first round and, and would be the most fun thing. Um, 
I, you know, I've talked to some people that, that, that think it's a possibility that he goes higher than we expect. I don't know how this recent thing about like him maybe informing teams that he's, he's not going to you know, sign with them or whatever and, and trying to kind of like filter his way through the first round to the team he really wants to go to, whoever that is. Uh, I don't know how that impacts things. The Russian factor is another thing. The fact he won't get him until 2026 is probably another thing for, for some of these teams. But in the Ducks case, I mean, if you have a guy that you're not going to see until 2026 and the core of your team is all under the age of like 22 or 23, like maybe you can wait for him. Um, the Santilli is a great player though. And, and for me, if I'm Pat Verbeek, the GM of the Ducks, I'm saying to myself, okay, if I can get, if I can get Santilli, and Mason McTavish is my two centers for the next decade. Like I'm in pretty good shape there. So as much as it's tantalizing to get a guy with Bitchkoff's ceiling, um, I got to imagine they're going to stay conservative and, and just like build to get that foundational piece. Cause Fantilli, if it, I mean, if this wasn't the Bedard draft, like we'd be hyping him up mm-hmm. as the topic overall because he's that good. Yeah. Um, I think that number two down to six, like it seems like a lot of chaos can ensue and maybe that starts with number two at Michkov. Um, want to ask you for personal advice, Nashville starter kit. I'm headed down there for the first time. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm getting myself into other than the draft is crazy. Everybody says it's a very fun time and Nashville's also a very fun time. So the two of those combined together sounds like chaos. <laughs> It is. Um, I mean, obviously, the first thing would be Gatorade. Make sure you have some Gatorade in your hotel room. Okay. You're going to need it. It's going to be a little hot down there and, and even hotter in some of the places that you go on, on Broadway. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, karaoke on Broadway. I've gone to a few places that get really fun as the night goes on. Um, and, and they take it very seriously uh, as far as, like, getting up there and, and really accepting the challenge of trying to entertain the crowd. It's just a fun place. Um, I will. I'll impart one piece of advice for you because I, I don't know. I don't know what your uh, what your diet is, uh, but I will say that there's a lot of hype around hot chicken down okay. there, Nashville hot chicken. I think it's all hype, man. It's just wow. there to to make you feel. I feel make you feel pain. The, the tastier the tastier option is hot catfish. That's the thing that I have really enjoyed so down old. there. I've I've liked it a lot more than the hot chicken. The hot chicken. Uh, makes me hate myself after I eat it. It's too hot. It makes my mouth hurt, and then I start sweating grease. I feel hot, hot catfish is the uh, the more uh, the more appetizing of the of the uh, burn your mouth on food options in Nashville. Wow, spoken like a true vet. I've written that down, and I will. Uh, I'll see you at karaoke. All right. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, safe trip and uh, enjoy the draft. If I don't get a chance to see you, and thanks for coming on. You got it. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer at ESPN, catfish connoisseur. There you go. I'm I, I can, I'm more jealous now wow. for sure. For I'm sure. Totally I've had dude, the hot chicken. Didn't have had some barbecue down there. Did not get my hands on some catfish. Well, like I feel like you can get like Nashville hot chicken at any plate. Like that's the yeah, thing now in Toronto. It's it's like, like, here's a hot chicken pop up. But you can get like poutine anywhere, and you should get it in Montreal. I yeah, feel no, like they're they're. It's you know I'm sure they do it the proper way. I am sure I'll try all three. Yeah, you probably. Just for the content for you to give you the update. I got to say, just to pivot off chicken for a second, (laughs) I'm a little bit concerned about the O'Reilly flirtation. What do you mean? Okay, so John Tavares is not like like a glaring klaxon going off issue, but, you know, fading a little bit and maybe mm-hmm. not the most, you know, cost per point kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, or a production per point or impact per point. 
O'Reilly's getting to that stage as well. He's uh, into the 30s. He's going to be looking for long-term, probably last chance to sign a big contract. Mm -hmm. He's not exactly fleet of foot. That line, while good in in Buffalo that one night, maybe a little bit plodding. Uh, I think he offers more like long-term viability than a guy like Tavares, who only does one thing, which is score generally. But I'm a little bit worried about locking up Ryan O'Reilly myself. Despite his connections He's to various Clinton, Hamlets. Ontario. I know, it can't just be all the Hamlet, Hamlet all the time. Can't be all Hamlet all the time. But it might be. We could go to Clinton <laughs> and I could sell you on it, all right? Maybe, maybe things are more important than, you know, winning, winning, winning in four or five it's years' time. It's about building the Hamlets <laughs> in Canada. It's about uniting Ontario. That's it. That's the passion that unites us all. There you go. That's From why it's Hamlet called that. Hamlet. That should be the second line. <gasps> what are we doing here? MLSC, get, get them on the phone. Um, okay. Let's give away some tickets. Billy Talent coming to Bud Stage on July 8th with special guest Cypress Hill, the Cancer Bats, and the OBGMs. We're giving away tickets all week long to enter. Just tune in to us, the Fan Morning Show. Listen for our daily code word and text it in to 590-590. Today's code word is surrender. Text surrender to 590-590 right now for your chance to win. If you don't win with us, make sure you visit Ticketmaster.ca to secure your tickets. Surrender. There you go. Will somebody surrender the third overall pick tonight at the NBA draft? We'll see. We're going to chat with Mark Kastetcher. No. Come on, man. Kastetcher. <laughs> Kastetcher. You put a hyphen in it, so I read it wrong. I'm trying to help you out. Kastetcher, NBA play-by-play announcer and host at ESPN Radio. He is hosting the pre-draft show tonight, 7 p.m., Victor Wembanyama, and then who's next? 